0: He came to lay down His life for all people whom the Father would give to Him, to save them from the condemnation that their sins deserve, and then to take up His life again and to be glorified with us in the Father's presence for eternity. He's said and done all that the Father gave Him to say and do, and now it's time For Jesus to lay down his life and take it back up again. And in chapter 18, which is where we're returning to in the gospel of John, those things begin to happen. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. If you have trouble following along as I'm preaching, you can scan the QR code that's in the bulletin and follow along with my manuscript Let me read John 18, 1 through 11. Follow along with me as I read. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kedron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we dive into this sermon. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word We pray, Lord, that the meditations of our heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. Lord, you're our rock and our Redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I hope that you see in this passage that Jesus is God determined to receive God's wrath for our sin. Jesus is God determined to receive God's wrath for our sin. That's the big idea in this passage. First of all, we see that John is telling us that Jesus gave himself up. That's the first point this afternoon. First of four, I might add, he gave himself up. Verses one through three is where we see that. He gave himself up. So after praying for the disciples and for all who would one day believe in him, he did that in John chapter 17, Jesus got up from that upper room where he was with his disciples, where he had shared the Passover meal with them, and he led them out of the city to a very familiar place, a garden. John doesn't name it, but we know its name from the other gospel accounts. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, it's no accident that Jesus' betrayal happened in a garden. There's another important garden mentioned in the Bible, and a very important betrayal took place in that garden as well. Our ancestors, Adam and Eve, betrayed their loving creator God in the Garden of Eden. When they rebelled against God, their sin brought death into the world. Every single person who's ever lived, including us, have walked in that path of rebellion and disobedience, just like they did. And we will die and be judged like them. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am the Savior, you will die in your sins. He said that earlier in the Gospel of John. Now Jesus has gone to his garden where he knows he will be betrayed and the events leading to his death will be set in motion. He's going to willingly be betrayed in a garden in order to solve the problem created by the first betrayal in the first garden. Adam and Eve lived in a garden of delight and brightness and beauty. Jesus, on the other hand, entered into a garden that was dark with dread. Eden's garden became the place of mankind's greatest failure in history. But Gethsemane, oh, Gethsemane, though dark, would be the beginning of Christ's victory over sin and death and Satan. In the Garden of Eden, God made a promise that a child of the woman would one day defeat the great serpent who had deceived man. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the descendant of Eve, and the son of the father, walked into the garden of Gethsemane ready and willing to set in motion the long-awaited victory over the serpent and sin and death. This garden was a familiar place because it's a place that Jesus had often taken his disciples to teach them and to pray together with them. If any of us knew that we were going to be betrayed and captured by people who could do us harm, we'd try to go to a place that we thought our enemies would least expect. John wants us to know that Jesus wasn't taken by surprise and that he wasn't running away from the arrest that he knew was coming. We know that because John reminds us that Judas also knew the place. He was familiar with it. In verse 3, we learn that Judas had gone out from the supper they had had together earlier that evening, and he'd gone to the authorities to tell them that he could deliver Jesus into their hands. He knew just the place to find him. And so he assembled a large party of soldiers and officers to arrest Jesus. The soldiers would have been Roman soldiers, and likely, based on the wording here in the Greek, they would have been numbering in the hundreds hundreds of soldiers they were armed they were prepared these hundreds carried lanterns and torches and weapons now <laughs> it makes sense that they brought so many armed men because they would have expected that there might be resistance from the crowds of jews who had poured into jerusalem for the passover crowds who loved to listen to jesus teaching and might riot if he was arrested But Jesus had spared them the danger of rioting crowds by going to this garden outside the city in the darkness. Jesus wasn't running away. He was giving himself up. Verse 4 reminds us again what John has emphasized throughout his gospel. Jesus knew all that would happen to him. He had avoided being arrested so many times before. Guards had been dispatched to bring him into custody, and yet they failed over and over and over again. In chapter 7, guards are sent but return empty-handed. When confronted by their leaders, they they reply, no one ever spoke like this man. (laughs) Jesus would not be arrested unless he wanted to be arrested. Jesus gave himself up. Do you see Jesus' willingness to give himself up for you? Does your heart swell with love and admiration for Jesus like mine does when I read this? And I know that he knew what was coming, but he gave himself up. He didn't run away. This Savior of ours wasn't tricked into saving us. No, he orchestrated it. Brothers and sisters, your Savior never flinched or drew back from his joyful task of saving you. Never. Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. If he would willingly offer himself up for you, then he has the same posture toward you now. He loves you. He's constant. He's consistent. He's joyfully willing to save and forgive and walk beside you all the days of your life. This is your Savior, Jesus. As the betrayal encounter unfolds in this passage, then we continue to see that Jesus is giving Himself up rather than being taken captive, and we see that He demonstrated His divinity. He demonstrated his divinity. That's the second point this afternoon. We see that in verses 4 through 6. Verse 4, of course, reminds us that Jesus is no ordinary man. He has the power of God and the knowledge of God. Why? Because he's the son of God. And his foreknowledge of all that would happen to him doesn't make him shrink back, but rather leads him to lean into his task of saving us. And so the soldiers and guards don't need to hunt for him hiding behind the 11 disciples, do they? <laughs> no. No, it's Jesus who steps forward and confronts his enemies. Whom do you seek? Is his question. Jesus of Nazareth is their answer. The answer from those hundreds of soldiers, by the way. Jesus replies, I am he. Though the Greek simply reads, I am. Jesus' reply is somewhat veiled and cryptic, but it reminds us, the readers, first of Jesus' seven I am statements recorded all throughout the Gospel of John, but it also should remind us of how God referred to himself when Moses met him in the burning bush on the mountain back in those opening chapters of the book of Exodus. When Moses asked who he should tell the Israelites sent him, the Lord answers, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus refers to himself as I am twice here in these verses, verses 5 and then verse 8. But as if we might not catch it, John repeats it one more time in verse 6 for us. So we'll see it. He's identifying himself as God. Christ was there in the burning bush on the mountain of God speaking to Moses. And here he is in the light of these burning torches speaking to his enemies. His foreknowledge and his name identify him as God. But there's more. Look there at verse 6 with me. It says, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, it's doubtful that these Roman soldiers and a few Jewish temple guards would be struck with the insight that Jesus is declaring himself to be the great I Am. It wouldn't be that clear, and there's no indication that they were viewing him with the eyes of faith, which is what it takes to identify that and see it and hear it and know what it means. However, we explain it, though, and it is hard to explain The power and the authority of Jesus has physically overwhelmed these soldiers. Their instinctive reaction is to draw back and fall to the ground. What great irony that when these men encountered the divine Son of God to commit a great act of wickedness, they drew back and fell to the ground in fear and awe. But for us the ones whom he shed his blood for. We instead fall forward on our knees in trembling love before him. If you're not a Christian, because of my concern for your soul, I want to point out to you that the fearful response of these hundreds of armed men to the voice of the Son of God will be your response to him on the day of judgment. Philippians 2 verse 11 says, Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Some knees will bow and some tongues will confess in adoration and love for him. But others will bow and confess in fear of his coming judgment. And if you have not put your trust and faith in him, that will be you. But it doesn't have to be that way. Do you see Jesus' divinity here in this encounter with his enemies? Do you sense Jesus' authority and his power? Are you understanding that he will come to judge, but he has already come to save all who see their need and turn to him in faith? Don't wait till the day when you fall back in fear. No, turn to Jesus now in adoration and faith, and your sins will be forgiven If you do, he will count you as his own and preserve you in faith until he comes again. You will be transformed from his foe to his friend. And you will be forever protected from the wrath of God by God himself. Trust in Jesus now. Jesus' divine power is also demonstrated in his ability to protect his own. That's the third point this afternoon. He protects his own. And we see it in verses 4 through 9. Excuse me, 7 through 9. 7 through 9. The promise of protection for those who trust in Jesus is symbolized here in Jesus' protection of his disciples. There in verses 8 and 9 specifically. Look there with me at the end of verse 8. He says with great authority, if you seek me, let these men go. Now, John understands that Jesus' statement as a fulfillment of what he had just prayed for them in the upper room hours earlier. If you look back a page or two to chapter 17 in your Bible, find verse 12. Find verse 12 in chapter 17. And you'll see that Jesus prayed, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. And here it is being fulfilled. Jesus had taught more than a few times that he would preserve all true disciples in the faith. They could not be lost. Speaking of his sheep that follow him, Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 28... I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus' promises to preserve all those who are his true disciples. Judas was not a true disciple. But these 11 are. And so Jesus persuades this mob of soldiers to let them go. Now we could point out that dissuading the soldiers from arresting the disciples is, is not the same as preserving them in the faith. Some Bible scholars think that the apostle John is actually wrong when he interprets what Jesus did and said. They argue that in passages like John 10, 28, Jesus is speaking about their eternal salvation, but here he's only protecting them from bodily harm. D.A. Carson, though, refutes that line of thinking, saying that Jesus is protecting them from arrest is a symbol of his preserving them in their salvation. Another pastor, theologian, agrees, and he draws this application for us. He says, Jesus knows which trials to allow us to experience so that we may be sure that every difficulty and challenge to our faith that we encounter is one that Jesus has sovereignly permitted For our eternal good. Brothers and sisters, we're not wise enough to decide which trials are too much for us and which ones we can handle. Only God knows that. And we can trust Him to orchestrate our lives with His infinite wisdom. You may feel that something that you're experiencing is just too much, that your faith is going to fail. Now, we should stand with each other in those times. That's one of the reasons why we're a church, why we've covenanted to one, an, to one another and to watch over either, each other's lives, to encourage one another in the faith, holding each other up in prayer, comforting one another with the comfort we've, been, we've received from Christ ourselves. But think for a moment, beloved. When we get to heaven, we're going to be able to look back and see all the calamities and the trials that Christ didn't allow us to experience so that our faith would be sustained. You and I do not know all the calamities and the trials that we have avoided because Christ has protected us from them. It's only then that we'll see it and know it. John Calvin says of the disciples here, Let us consider how great their weakness was. What do we think they would have done if they had been brought to the test? While therefore Christ did not choose that they should be tried beyond the strength which he had given to them, he rescued them from eternal destruction. If you're in Christ, then Christ has protected you so far in your walk with him and he will be faithful to the end. He loves you, church, and there are countless ways that he's protecting and preserving you in the faith. And for that, we should thank him regularly. One more threat to Jesus' divine control of this dark situation occurs. But Jesus prevents it from derailing his plan because he was determined to receive God's judgment. He was determined to receive God's wrath, that's the fourth point this afternoon that we see. In verses 10 and 11, you can put it simply, he received God's wrath. Beginning in verse 10, Simon Peter decides to take drastic action to protect his Lord. Let's read those two verses again just to be clear what happened and what was said. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear the servant's name was malchus so jesus said to peter put your sword into its sheath shall i not drink the cup that the father has given me now peter was eager to defend jesus despite the force that came to arrest him being far too large for him to ever hope that he could fight back hundreds of roman soldiers he drew his sword He cut off the right ear of the high priest's servant, not even a soldier, mind you. But Jesus immediately rebukes Peter and utters perhaps the most important words in this entire text. It's a rhetorical question. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The answer is, yes, I shall drink that cup. Don't stand in my way, Peter. Scattered throughout the Old Testament, a cup filled with God's wrath and anger is a metaphor or an image that God uses to describe how he will repay sin. Look back for just a moment in your bulletin, if you have it with you, to Psalm 75. Thelma Zerbick read that for us earlier. Look there at verses 7 and 8, towards the end of the psalm. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That means drink it. God is holy and just. He is the judge of all the earth and all people. The Scriptures are clear. All sin deserves God's just condemnation and punishment. His anger is roused by sin, and everyone who refuses to repent of their sin and seek His forgiveness and salvation, they will drink this cup of wrath. That is what will happen to the wicked. But here we see Jesus saying something amazing. We see Him saying that He's going to drink that cup. In going to the cross, Jesus will be drinking the cup of God's wrath. The one and only beloved Son of God will experience what unrepentant sinners deserve. He, the Holy One of Israel, who always has done exactly what His Father guided Him to say and do, He will take on Himself what unholy people should receive from God. The theological word for this is propitiation. And it is the primary way that the Bible describes the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Ligon Duncan, a current-day Bible theologian, says it this way, Wrath is what our sin and rebellion justly deserve. Even though God is a God of infinite love, he does not show his mercy at the expense of his justice. In other words, he doesn't compromise his justice. So, propitiation is the way that the loving God shows us mercy justly. Did you hear that? He shows us mercy justly. And it's included as well, and it's referred to in our statement of faith. In our statement about Jesus and His atoning work on the cross, it says this, He made full atonement for our sins and became our sacrificial substitute, forgiving our sins absorbing the wrath of God and adopting us into the family of God. That phrase, absorbing the wrath of God, that describes propitiation. Penal substitution is another theological phrase to describe it. One popular metaphor that you might think of to describe Christ absorbing God's wrath might be this. Think of a superhero Stepping in between a great villain and his victim, just as the villain lets loose a death ray to kill the victim. Only that metaphor fails, too. Popular metaphors often fail to describe what the Bible teaches. You see, we're not the victim, and God's not the villain. We're the villains who have rebelled against a holy and loving God. We deserve to drink the cup of wrath. Some theologians consider the idea of Jesus having to drink the cup of wrath to be a a distortion of God and His saving work and His love. They, They think it turns God into an unreasonable pagan deity. But that's not the God of the Scriptures. Why? Because Jesus isn't our Savior Trying, just trying if he could get his angry father to love us. No, no, no. He is going to the cross because the father has loved us before the foundation of the world. And he's given the son as the greatest expression of his love. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. God loves us, and that's why he sent Christ into the world. There are many things that Christ's death on the cross has accomplished. He defeated Satan and the powers of hell. He showed us the greatest example of love, which we can imitate. He pays a penalty for our sin. All of those are right, But above all, Christ drank the cup of wrath that we deserve to drink because of our sin. Only the triune God could absorb the wrath of God on our behalf and save us to be his own dear children. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for your sin if you've trusted in Christ. Is this your understanding of the cross? Do you see how this is a crucial part of the gospel message and therefore a crucial thing to understand for anyone to come to become a Christian. I've spoken here only of this cup of wrath, but the fact is that God pours two cups. The cup of wrath for those who remain in their sin and the cup of blessing for those who turn to Christ. The cup of blessing overflows with eternal life, a future with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Those who get to drink from the cup of blessing have that privilege because Christ drank their deserved cup of wrath already on the cross. That is what Christ did for you, Christian. Jesus received God's judgment for you. And it is far greater than any of the many other blessings that he will pour out in your life. Keep it at the center of your prayers of thanks. Day in and day out. Thank God that he saved you, a sinner. Never forget that you were the villain, the rebel, the betrayer. No matter how difficult life becomes, don't lose sight of the fact that if Christ drank the cup of wrath for you, you are blessed. You saw Judas's betrayal coming, didn't you? If you've read through the Gospel of John. He didn't tell the true story like they would in a movie. Movies use surprise to keep you glued to the screen. Clicking on that next episode so you can see what happens. John wanted you to see it coming. John wants us to be drawn to Jesus, not because he was a victim of betrayal, but because he's the sovereign son of God who, based on his great love, the love of both he and the Father, took on the wrath of God that our sins deserve. He gave himself for you. Have you given yourself to him? Oh, Christian, won't you... Throw off the sin that so easily entangles and give him every single minute of your life. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are not simply an unreasonable pagan deity who's going to be satisfied with trinkets and earthly gifts you are the holy God of heaven and your wrath against sin is just and your love for us is infinite and we praise you that you and the son orchestrated the plan for him to die on the cross to drink that cup of wrath so that we wouldn't have to, and we'd get to drink the cup of blessing. We praise you that the Spirit convicted our hearts of this great message, this great work that you've done, and has applied that saving work of Christ to us, sealing us for the day when you return. Oh, Lord, we pray that you'd help us follow you wholeheartedly and trust in you evermore. In Christ's name, amen.